morning we're going to talk about belief and unbelief. Those two things are fundamentally juxtaposed to one another, but they're elements in our faith. Uh, we believe some things to be true, things that we can't see, taste, touch, or smell. And then sometimes it, it becomes difficult for us to believe some things. We, we struggle with that. Um, and we call that doubt. So in the middle of belief and unbelief is this thing called doubt, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. Um, but I was reading this week, uh, John Bunyan. Anybody read any Puritans lately? Um, John Bunyan had some helpful insights in his book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. It's classic Puritan style. And, and, and as, a, as a classic Puritan, Bunyan lists 25 contrasts between faith and unbelief. And I will not go through all 25 this morning, but I just pulled a few out this morning I thought were the most helpful. Um, here are a couple. Uh, Bunyan says, faith sees more in a promise of God to help than in all other things to hinder, while unbelief sees more in the things that hinder than in God's promise to help. Faith helps the soul to wait when God defers to give, but unbelief takes offense if God makes us wait. So I don't know. I don't know about you. I was reading this again just last night and going, man, some of this is autobiographical, you know? Um, Faith makes great burdens light, but unbelief makes light burdens heavy. Faith brings us near to God when we're far from Him, but unbelief puts us far from God when we were near to Him. Here's the last one. I'll just give you one more. Faith purifies the heart. Unbelief keeps the heart impure. And I just love that contrast uh, that, that Bunyan creates there. As he, he tells us back, you know, this back and forth. Here the, here the, here's the reality that God wants for us. Here's the reality that we often find ourselves in. And I don't know about you, but I suddenly feel like I need to read more John Bunyan. Uh, I need more Puritans in my reading. Uh, but this morning, our texts in the Harmony of the Gospel deal heavily with unbelief. So I, I just want to take a moment to define that term for us. According to the King James Version Dictionary, unbelief is incredulity, the withholding of belief, infidelity, disbelief of divine revelation. In the Greek, it's, it's the merging of two concepts. It's the merging of disobedience and distrust. Jesus rebuked his disciples for unbelief more than any other single thing. The reason unbelief is so dangerous is that not only is it a sin in itself, but it can become a gateway to other sins as well. We need to be aware of that. Now, there have been many wonderful books and written and, and many powerful sermons preached about faith. Faith is the currency of God's kingdom. Without faith, we know Hebrews eleven six tells us, without it, it's impossible to please God. But I think many people have a basic misunderstanding about faith. We pray and we pray to seek more and more faith, but what if I told you this morning that you already had enough faith? Would you believe it? You already have faith as a mustard seed. What if you, what if you heard me say to you this morning, you already have enough faith faith. You have plenty of faith. The problem is not that you have too little faith. 
You already have faith enough to move mountains according to the scriptures. But in our text this morning, this man comes to Jesus and says, I do believe, help my unbelief. Notice he didn't ask Jesus to give him more faith. In fact, he said, I, I do believe. That's how he began. This man, which we'll see in a moment, recognized that the problem wasn't too little faith. It was too much unbelief. It wasn't a lack of faith. It was too much unbelief. It's a lot like the story I heard about a woman who was still in Bible college when her father, brought, he, he just showed up. He bought her a new car. She was doing really well academically. He wanted to love on her. He, he showed up. It was a silver Volkswagen Jetta, and it was a diesel. I don't know how much he really loved her um, if it was a diesel. But uh, anyway, anyway, um, one day she, she, so she, you know, she's driving around, and a friend asked to borrow a car, and she loaned the car to her friend. And on his way to return the car as a courtesy, he decided to stop and top off the tank. And he pulled into the gas station, inserted the credit card, opened the gas tank, filled it with unleaded gasoline. Yeah, his little mistake was devastating for that vehicle. After the gasoline was added, the vehicle would no longer run. The problem was not that there was too little diesel in the tank. The problem was the injection of a substance that was incompatible with the vehicle's design. That's how unbelief works, okay? And this is exactly uh, why the devil wants to inject unbelief into our spirits because he knows it brings us to a screeching halt. It makes us ineffective for the kingdom. So let's look at some texts this morning to see the battle between belief and unbelief. If you've got your harmony of the gospel, it's section 95, and I think 96 and 97 this morning, but a big chunk of text this morning in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So let's get going here. Matthew 9, 18 to 26. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. She, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. And he said, Go away, for the little girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all of that district. Okay, so now here's Mark's account. And this is one of the few times where, remember, Mark is Peter's telling of the gospel. Peter was illiterate. He's a blue-collar worker. He can't write. He doesn't have the skill set. So, um, so Mark is his amanuses, his secretary. He's the one writing for Peter. Peter's dictating. And so this is one of those places where Peter actually has more detail than the other gospel writers. It's, it's, it's rare, but uh, Mark 5, 21 to 43 and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so he went with him. 
And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body, man, that's awesome. She felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned to the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. And she, she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And again he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and then he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, and she began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. And now Luke's account. Luke eight forty to 56. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. They were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went with the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surged around you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was that that she was not hidden, she, she came trembling, falling down before him, and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she, she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, upon hearing this, said, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came into the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Then all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead. She is sleeping. But they laughed at him. And, and um, they all laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called and said, child, arise. 
And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that she be giving, given something to eat, and her parents were amazed, and he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So, recap. Jesus has come back from the area of the Decapolis across the Sea of Galilee. Luke tells us the crowds were already waiting for him. One of the local religious leaders, a man named Jairus, comes to Jesus with an urgent request. His daughter is dying. He's asking Jesus to come and heal her. Now, skeptics claim that a contradiction exists between Matthew's account and the account of Mark and Luke. Matthew records Jairus telling Jesus, my daughter's just died. The other two accounts indicate that the daughter was at the point of death or that she was dying. Now, critics of the Bible and critics of biblical inerrancy will assert that the difference between these accounts represents a blatant contradiction. But is it, it is possible Matthew was relating the inevitability and certainty of Jairus' daughter dying rather than making a statement about our current condition. Right? The, the, the Greek word rendered is even now dead does not necessarily mean, as our English translations would say, that she had actually passed on, but only that she was dying or about to die. The, the passage in Matthew could be expressed rightly. You could, you could read it like this. My daughter is so sick, she must be dead by this time. That's, that's like, if you, if you ever watch a, a campy Western movie, and I, I, I was ever into Westerns, into, I don't know, something about being in your like, late 40s. You start watching black and white movies. I don't know what that's about. But there's always, the, there's always the guy, there's always the sheriff, draws the gun on the man standing there. Whoever draws the gun says, you're a dead man, and then pulls the trigger. Well, so that's out of order. That movie can't be true. He was only dead after. But, so, but, the, but you, see, you see what's happening, right? You say, you're a dead man, and then you pull the trigger. And that's, that's kind of akin to what's happening in Matthew's gospel, okay? She's as good as dead, is what he's saying. But apart from the apologetics and all the debate about the skeptics, can't you just hear the heart of a daddy who's come to Jesus for help? He knows he doesn't have anywhere else to turn. He knows his daughter's dying, and he's come to the master to, to seek the only help that he can get. And... and there must have been such an urgency about Jairus as a father. You can almost feel the sense of relief when Jesus begins to move in the direction of his house and they start, start going with the crowd. But then there's this interruption. I don't know about you. I hate interruptions. I hate them. And God is training me in my late 40s to uh, embrace interruptions. Yeah, it It happens. It happens. I think ultimately it's a good thing, but it's really hard. It's really hard. And so um, she's not mentioned by name, but we find out that this woman had been sick for 12 years with abnormal, uh, some abnormal bleeding condition, and apparently her blood wouldn't clot normally, and her constant bleeding caused her to be weak, tired, frail, drained of energy. I mean, just think about that. Think about having 12 years of, of bleeding and feeling exhausted every day. And on top of that, this woman was ceremonially unclean for 12 years. That meant she was cut off from the most important activities of the Jewish people around her. She could not participate. She couldn't enter the temple courts. She couldn't participate in the annual feasts. She was cut off from her own people. Not because of something she had done. This is something that happened to her. So relying on anonymity in the crowd that was moving toward Jairus' house, she takes a chance and she does something audacious. 
she reaches out and takes a hold of the hem of Jesus' garment. She grabs a hold of it. But let's not run past that because the hem is important to the Jews. See, men wore close-fitting tunics made of linen or wool. It was worn right next to the skin, had, had an opening for the neck, sometimes sleeves. Uh, those tunics were generally long, all, almost to the ankles. And um, we know that Jesus' garment was seamless, according to John 19, 23. And the talit, the talit was this square garment. We call it a shawl or a prayer shawl that um, was, was made out of linen. Um, and so the, the talit had uh, tassels on the corners in fulfillment of the commandments of Moses in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22 to, as a reminder, those tassels were reminders to be obedient to the law of God, okay? And so th- there are colorful strands that made up the tassels, and the hem of that prayer shawl would be the place where the authority of the rabbi or the leader was seen outwardly. In our military, you've got your rank insignia on your shoulder. For the Jewish rabbis, that shawl, the talit, the, the, the tassels and the hem spoke to the authority of the rabbi, or the religious leader. And so um, the, the, this is the, 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 the setting that we come into. We see the, um, the word is tzitzit, which is the tassels. The tzitziot is the plural. And it's, it's, it happens several places in the Bible, if you think about it. You go back to Samuel, 1 Samuel, when um, um, Saul throws himself on Samuel in repentance and rips Samuel's shawl. That's the same thing. Um, you see Elijah's mantle being passed to Elisha. That mantle was that prayer shawl. Uh, David cutting off Saul's garment in the cave of Abdullah. That's the shawl, the, the fringe, the hem of that is what David cut off because that's the place of authority, right? He took it and then he felt he was convicted about it, right? So this, this is what we're talking about. Jesus is wearing one of these and getting back to the woman, um, she chooses faith instead of unbelief. When she reaches out and takes the hem, touches the hem, she's choosing faith over unbelief. Here in the Gospels, we see this woman enacting her faith in several different ways. Think about this. She listened to Jesus and and believed him. She came to him in the crowd anonymously. She, She comes to him. She takes the initiative. She touched his garment And she trusted in faith that he could heal her. And then she was healed. And the moment she was healed, she knew it instantly. And then she confessed it openly. Mark's gospel says that immediately she felt in her body that she was healed. And Jesus felt it too. The crowds jostling around him didn't warrant his immediate attention. Um, He's getting touched by other people constantly, but this touch was different. Even Jesus says, I know that power has gone out of me. He said, who touched me? I know that the power has gone out of me. Uh, And I've always imagined her suddenly afraid because she could no longer hide. So the question I had for a long time was, why would Jesus expose her to the crowd? Why would he expose her secret? But I think there's some good reasons. The first, this is the first step in removing a terrible burden and a stigma of uncleanness from this woman. For Jesus to publicly say, your faith has made you well. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Jesus accepts her and he isn't angry, but he blesses her after she's been healed. 
Look at the text. He calls her daughter. This restores her self-esteem. It also restores her standing in the community. And I think also Jesus is clarifying what had happened so that it wouldn't fall into the realm of magic or superstition. In the hearing of the crowd in that moment, he proclaims, your faith has healed you. Her faith wasn't in his clothing. It was God's working through Jesus and the authority that she knew that he had. She was putting her faith in Jesus, not his prayer shawl. Now, while all that's happening, a messenger comes running up from Jairus' house to let him know there's no point, really, in bringing Jesus to the house. Your daughter is now dead. Can you even imagine what it would be like to be in that crowd? The highs and the lows from moment to moment in that setting, it's incredible to me. You can imagine just the heavy wave of grief and sorrow sweeping over everyone in the crowd at the hearing of the message of the demise of the little girl. And if you're, if you're Jairus, if you're daddy, man, you're suddenly finding your heart crushed, completely crushed. Jesus finally arrives at the house and he puts everyone out outside and, and Jairus' worst fears realized as uh, men from his home you know, have reported uh, that during the delay the daughters died. In the, in the minds of these men, death marked the end of Jesus' ability to help. Well, you just tell the master there's no point in coming. She's dead. But Jesus' plans and purposes are different from ours. Jesus encouraged Jairus to continue in his belief. Don't give up. Don't, don't, don't be overcome. And Jesus acknowledged Jairus' reality with this admonition. He says, do not fear. Only believe. Don't let unbelief take a hold of you. Upon their arrival, Jesus challenged the reality of the crowds of mourners had already gathered, stating that their pronouncement of the girl's death was incorrect, and, and he commanded the little girl to get up. And from death to life, this 12-year-old girl got up and walked around. And you've got to know, both of her parents and the disciples are astonished, and they're just beside themselves. And, and the text tells us, uh, even, even says, quote, they were out of their minds with great amazement. Yeah, if, if your 12-year-old has died suddenly, and then somebody brings her back to life, you're out of your mind with gratitude and excitement. It's amazing to me. And we go on in Matthew 9, 27, uh, this next section. So as Jesus had passed on from there, so after that event, uh, he's passing on from there. It says, two blind men followed him, crying aloud. I love what they're saying. Have mercy on us, son of David. And when they entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to you, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced temporary blindness. I, I, I tried one day, I guess, I guess I was like 27, 28. I just I, I had a friend that I just made who was blind, and I, for some reason I thought, I'm going to try 
just to, to like wrap something around my eyes for a day, just to see what it's like for a day. I lasted about 30 minutes. I didn't like it at all. I kept bumping. My shins got bruised really fast. I'm just thinking, you know, just put yourself in, the, in, in their position for a moment. You know, they're blind. These are people that are following Jesus, crying out to Jesus, who can't see Jesus, don't know which direction he's going. They're just, they're trying to, they're trying to get to the Messiah. We don't know if these men have been blind from birth or how they might have lost their sight. We, we just know that they don't have it, but they're following Jesus to the best of their ability, and they're crying out this phrase, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, I think that's particularly interesting. They aren't calling him by his given name, Jesus. They're calling to him according to a very significant title. If you're a Jew and you call somebody the son of David, you're saying, that's our king. That's my king. That's the ruler of Israel. That's the Mashiach, the Messiah. They're saying, have mercy on a son of David. That's really interesting to me. That might not sound like a big deal to you, but consider Old Testament prophecy. What was the promise of God that he made to David on oath? Well, 2 Samuel 7 tells us, God says to David, I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make for you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who, will come after, who, who shall come from your body, your lineage, okay? And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We call this the Davidic covenant. It's an unconditional covenant made between God and David through whom God promised uh, that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David and from the tribe of Judah and would establish a kingdom that's going to endure forever. So this Davidic covenant is unconditional because God doesn't place any conditions on, uh, upon its fulfillment. The surety of the promises that, that God made rests solely on God's faithfulness and they don't depend at all on David's obedience or Israel's obedience is all about God's faithfulness. It's a very one-sided covenant. And these two blind men, though they cannot see the physical world, they have heard the tales of the Messiah, Jesus, and they've come to a profound conclusion about his identity, that he's the son of David. They, they might not have the ability of sight, but they can see clearly. They see it clearly. And then this part, it says, he touched their eyes right? He touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And then Jesus is stern and he tells them, keep it under wraps. And of course they don't. Nobody in the gospels keeps it under wraps. And, and, and they're exuberantly telling everybody that they encounter and they're spreading the reputation of the Nazarene everywhere that they go. And then verse 32, as they were going away, behold, it's like, this is a long day. Okay, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to Jesus. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. See, here comes another person in need. And this time it's a demonized man who's mute because of the demon. We don't know what Jesus said, 
or what he did in this instance or how he healed him, but we know that the demon left the person. And, and to the point, we've seen faith in action in the midst of various circumstances. In our study, we're, I think we're, next week is week 30, 30 weeks in the harmony of the Gospels, and we're not even halfway through. But we've seen this. We've seen Jesus in action. We've seen healing. And now we have an opportunity to see what disbelief looks like. In these texts this morning, we've seen belief, we've seen faith, we've seen trust, but here we see unbelief. Here we see the Pharisees, um, we have an opportunity to see their unbelief. They, they immediately um, shoot this down. We don't know if the Pharisees were immediately present for the restoration, if they were there to see it happen, but, but we have their response. They can't dispute the healing. The man was mute. And now he's speaking, so that's an empirical fact. But nevertheless, not everyone recognizes Jesus for who he really is. See, here's, here's our long-awaited example in the text this morning of unbelief. These Pharisees likely have been present at, or at the very least heard about, the day's activities. Everything we covered in the text to this point. At the very least, we know that they were present here for the casting out of a demon and the restoration of this man's ability to speak. But instead of faith, instead of responding in faith, the response is something else. Their response is unbelief. Remember we defined that in the introduction? We said unbelief is the withholding of belief, the, the disbelief of divine revelation. Jesus is revealing who he is, by the miracles of healing, and they are disbelieving Jesus. It's an act of the will. So let's get the next section, and then, and then we're going to wrap this up. I hope you're, and I hope that along the way, you're, you're wrestling with, in your own heart and mind, belief and unbelief. And then in the middle is this thing called doubt, which is not a bad thing. We'll talk about that in a minute, but just keep that in your mind, belief and unbelief. In Matthew 13, uh, 53, Jesus had finished uh, the parables. He went away from there, coming to his hometown. He taught in the synagogue. They were astonished at him. So where did this man, this is uh, 1353 to 58, they, they said, where, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Their unbelief. Mark 6, 1-6. through 6, He went away from there and came to his hometown his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? You, you should stop right there. Right? Just stop right there. Just be in, be in awe of Jesus. But no. Look at verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? The son of, the son of Mary? Son of Joseph? Son, yeah, illegitimate son. That stigma followed Jesus. You got to know that. In, in, a, in, a, in a rural community like that, you have to know that that stigma followed him around. 
Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. But did you catch it? They were astonished at Jesus. When he taught in the synagogue, they marveled at him because they couldn't wrap their minds and their hearts around the implications of it. So instead of accepting it, they shifted gears. Where did this hick from the sticks get this kind of learning? Isn't he just a tecton, that that Greek word for a blue-collar working stiff? Isn't he just a blue-collar guy? They took offense at him, despite all that had happened and all of the reports of of everything. Just, Just that day, just what happened that day, they chose unbelief. And it is a choice. It's a choice that we make. We choose faith or we choose unbelief. Despite all that happened, they're choosing unbelief. It's so ridiculous that Mark 6, 6 tells us Jesus himself marveled at them because of their unbelief. He stood away. You ever, you, do you ever do that? Somebody, you're talking to somebody and you can't believe their unbelief. You can't, you can't wrap your brain around what it is that's keeping them from seeing the truth. You just step back and go, what? Are you doing? You don't see it? You don't accept this? That's, what, that's wild to me that you can't see this reality. And that's what's happening. Jesus is incredulous. incredulous. It depends on which syllable you put the emphasis. That's, he's incredulous. or he's in, uh, Anyway, um, it was F.B. Meyer who said this, unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstances. We're we're supposed to be a people of faith. Not that we don't stumble along the way. Not that we don't struggle with doubt from time to time. And and it may be the case that some of you are struggling with unbelief right now. Let me just say to you this morning, if you're struggling with unbelief, not doubt, I'm talking about unbelief, that's a repentance issue. That's a come and kneel before Jesus and confess situation. But doubt is different. You can't, uh, let's see if we can say this in a way that's going to make sense. You can't have faith without questions. Our faith is not a blind faith. Questions are okay. This This is true for a simple reason. God has chosen to keep many things secret. We don't know all of it. We we take it on faith. Faith and doubt are close friends. Faith and unbelief are opposites. So so like Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us secret the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that aren't revealed, that are revealed, excuse me, belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So so even from the Old Testament, it's like, okay, there are hidden things here that we don't know about or understand fully, but we believe that they're, that they're true. We believe that God's doing those things. We don't have to know and see everything, right? There are certain things God has revealed. That's what makes faith possible. And there are certain things that God has kept secret, and that was what makes faith necessary. 
He hasn't revealed everything to us. If he did, your brain would explode. If he downloaded everything to you, you'd be like, you just follow. You couldn't handle it. Paul, even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now I know in part. I know a little bit of the reality. And he had spent days with Jesus, like transitioning from Saul to Paul and, and, and coming to faith and, and actually being in the, in the glorified presence of Jesus. That's amazing to me. And, and even Paul saying, I, I only know in part. I know partially. I don't know all of it. We know in part. That's why we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith lives with some unanswered questions. You can't live in this world without asking why, right? We all live with the realities of evil and suffering to some extent. It's a deeply important part of the Christian faith to say that we know God has revealed some things to us, and we know that God hasn't revealed other things to us. And that's okay. That's okay. And it's equally important that Christian humility says, well, God has chosen to keep something secret, and, and if we knew all that, it would, it would blow our minds up like we couldn't function in the world. Now, stay with me for this next part. See, I think you can only doubt what you believe, which is to say you can't doubt that which you don't believe. Say it like this. Doubt is not the absence of faith. Doubt is the questioning of faith. And that's okay. That's okay. Because God's big enough to handle it. Doubt is the questioning of faith. You can only doubt if you already have faith. You can only doubt if you believe. Doubt and unbelief, those are different things, though. Again, doubt is questioning what you believe. Unbelief is a determined refusal to believe. That's different. See, doubt is a struggle that's faced by believers. The people that have doubts are the people who have faith. Unbelief is the natural condition of the unbeliever. Unbelief involves spiritual blindness and a determined resistance to God. You think about what the Apostle Paul said about his former life as he persecuted Christians. Um, he, yeah, he said, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I acted in ignorance and unbelief. In other words, he, couldn't, he could not understand the truth at that time. That was ignorance. And he was deeply resistant to the truth. That was his unbelief. So it may be the case here this morning that some of you are here who feel that the pro your problem is doubt when in reality the issue is unbelief. If that's you this morning, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of doubting your faith. It might be that you don't have faith to doubt. The remedy is to call out to the God that you cannot see and then read and trust his word. You see, I suspect that even here among us, there may be some people who feel that their problem is doubt when it's a problem of unbelief. The issue, again, it's, it, if that's you this morning, you need to believe the things that God has revealed and act upon them. That's how you engage your faith. God, so let me give you a short list. Short list. Just start here. I believe that God has sent his son into the world. I believe that the son of God loves me and gave himself for me. I believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven. I believe that I am more sinful and wicked than I ever thought possible. I believe I'm loved more than I can ever imagine. Why don't you start with that? 
If that's you this morning, if you're struggling with unbelief, this is what, um, what was written in the book of Revelation. John's seeing this in Revelation 21. He says, and, to, and he who is seated on the throne, Jesus, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these are the words are trustworthy and they're true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And to the one who conquers, he will have this heritage, and, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable, and as for murderers and the sexually immoral and the sorcerers and idolaters and liars, Jesus says their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and fire, which is the second death. Did you know unbelief is in that list? Unbelief. That is the ultimate and eternal result of unbelief, refusing to accept what God has promised. Make sure that that is not said of you, that you could not enter in to the kingdom because of unbelief. Jesus will never think of your need as an interruption to his day. He longs to commune with you. And he will never scold you for coming to him. He never will. It's quite the opposite. He's, quite, he's, exci- he's excited that you have the faith to trust him and bring your needs to him. Every time you bring your needs to Jesus, you're showing that you have faith in him. Did you know that? You can't do that unless you're needy. Some of you are like, I want to have it all together. I don't have to have any needs, any problems. Okay, that's, that's called being dead. All right? In the meantime, Bring your problems, bring your cares, bring your issues to Jesus. He delights in that. That is a function of your faith. It's one of the things that grows us in our maturity as Christians because as we bring things to Jesus, we get to see him deal with them and, and, and fix them and change those circumstances, and then we stand in awe of his goodness and glory and grace. It's a tremendous process. Every time you bring your needs to Jesus, you're showing him that you have faith in him, that you trust that he has the power and the compassion to help you. So, so I would just wrap up this morning by saying this. Be like that woman who had the issue of blood whom Jesus healed. She listened to Jesus. She came to him. She, she reached out for him and to touch him. She trusted in faith and she was healed. Knew it instantly, confessed it openly. That should be a reflection of our lives. We've been healed of sin. Now we still struggle with it, but the penalty of sin has been removed if, you, if you're born again. We can go and tell, just like she went and tell. She acted in faith. She couldn't shut up about it. She, she became a fanatic. You know what she became? She became an evangelist. Go and do likewise. Lord, we just ask for your direction, your guidance, your spirit to fall upon us and fill us afresh. We hear these words from the gospel accounts. We uh, see how that they, they apply to our lives. And yet when we walk out of this place on Sunday afternoon, it's easy. It's easy to lose sight of what you've said to us. It's easy to forget and and uh, put aside what we've learned here today. I pray that you would burn it deep into our minds, into our hearts, that we would be seeking you, 
Just like the woman with the issue of blood sought you, just like Jairus sought you, we would be seeking your presence, coming to you with all of our needs. You are never wearied by that. And we rejoice that you're never wearied. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. try something different today. This is called a call and response. I'm going to read part of a psalm. The words will be on the screen. You respond. Let's try it. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Oh, man. Let's try it again. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. In our anguish, we cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting us free. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. The Lord is our strength and our song. He has become our salvation. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. We will not die, but live, and we'll proclaim what the Lord has done. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. This one's different. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.